This is Nima Novetsky from TanahStudy.com. Today we'll continue our study of Parashat Bahar, moving into the second half of Chapter 25, a series of laws which are distinct from, but nonetheless emerge from the mitzvah of Yovel. As we noted when we first opened up the parasha, this half of the chapter contains four distinct units, each beginning with the phrase, if your brother becomes impoverished. The first of these sections speaks of a case in which a person's poverty leads him to sell his land. The second deals with laws of loans, and the last two sections speak of a person who is forced to sell himself into slavery. The connection between these mitzvot and the institution of Yovel is obvious. As we pointed out previously, the Jubilee year revolved around three basic laws. That one is not allowed to work the land, that all land that was sold returns to its original owners, and that all slaves are freed. This second half of the chapter picks up on the last two of these points, elaborating on the laws of land sales and the laws of slavery, mandating not only that neither may be sold for eternity, but also how and under what circumstances might each be redeemed. In today's class, we'll look closely at the issue of land sale and redemption, and Amir Sashem in our next session will turn to the laws of slavery. Let's start with verses 23 and 24, which serve as a segue between the chapter's initial discussion of Yovel and our laws of land redemption. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently. For the land is mine. For you are strangers and live as foreigners with me. In all the land of your possession, you shall grant a redemption for the land. Hashem tells the nation that in Judaism, there's no such thing as a permanent land sale in Eretz Yisrael, nor is there really a concept of human ownership of land at all. Hashem is the only owner of the land, and as such, we are more like renters who must abide by the laws of our landlord, God. Even if someone tried to make a permanent land sale, it would not be valid, and the land would return to its owners in Yovel. Our verses, though, are about to go further teaching that even a sale which is set only until the Jubilee year is not necessarily going to be static and last for that long. For in certain circumstances, the original owner can redeem his land, nullifying the sale. As we saw with regards to our discussions of both Shemitah and Yovel, here too the Torah hints to two different reasons for the law, one related to our relationship to Hashem and one to our relationship with our fellow man. The verse we just read emphasizes the idea that land redemption is connected to the fact that Hashem is master of the land. Kili Haaretz. Fluidity of land sales highlights how they are not totally in the buyer's control and constantly reinforce how the true owner is not he, but Hashem. At the same time, there's also a social welfare aspect to our laws. As we said, the laws of land, of land redemption are to be introduced with the words, V'chiyah Much and when your brother becomes impoverished. And as such, they're aimed at helping the poor. If someone is destitute enough to sell his land, which in the times of Tanakh meant to a large extent that you were selling your source of livelihood, we ensure that if he or a relative has the means, he can get it back and get back on his feet, and that he can do so without having to wait half a lifetime until Yovel happens to come along. In emphasizing these two aspects together, our verses highlight the unique nature of Hashem's kingship. He is not a dictator or a despot who takes all to strengthen his kingdom and increase his power. Rather, he highlights his ultimate ownership of the land 
only to ensure that the less fortunate get the help that they need. Rav David Sabato, following Nacham Alibowitz, highlights this idea by comparing our laws with Yosef's sale of the Egyptians' land to Paro during the years of famine, a story that's described in Breshi chapter 47. We're told there how despite the fact that during the years of plenty, the Egyptians had each given a fifth of their grain to be stored for the years of famine, when famine struck, the Egyptians were nonetheless forced to give up all their money and cattle and even offered themselves as slaves in order to buy food. Yosef took all their land and a fifth of any future produce for Paro and then implemented a policy of population displacement, meant to ensure that all recognized that the land now belonged to Paro. This story stands in stark contrast to the laws of our chapter. While Yosef buys up the Egyptians' land so as to give Paro total control over it, as the verse says, the Paro, the Torah states that land can never be sold permanently, for it belongs to Hashem. Since the Egyptians had previously given of their grains to Paro to be stored for the years of famine, justice would have seemed to dictate that during the famine, they need not sell themselves and their land to buy back the very food that they were earlier forced to store. As such, Paro appears to be taking advantage of his nation, using the famine as a means to totally enslave and acquire all that belonged to them. In contrast, though Hashem similarly declares, Kili Haaretz, he does not actually take any of the land for himself, but rather gives it back to the very poor who were first forced to sell it in the first place, the exact opposite of Paro. Similarly, though both Paro in the Breshit story and Hashem here insist that the people are their slaves, the Egyptians became Avadim Lefaro, while Hashem says here, Kiavadaihim, the Torah emphasizes how different these two masters are. In declaring the Egyptians his slaves, Paro meant to control and use them for his own benefit. When Hashem declares the same, he does so to emphasize how he freed the children of Israel and to forbid eternal bondage to another human. Hashem then is the antithesis of Paro. Yes, he declares, Kili Haaretz, the land is mine, and Ki Avadaihim, the people are mine. But they are his to care for and provide for, not to take advantage of. With this as an introduction, let's move into the specifics of the laws of land redemption. The verses delineate four different scenarios. The sale of a field, the sale of a house in a walled city, the sale of a house in an unwalled settlement, and the sale of Levite homes. The laws of each differ somewhat, and as we learn the verses, we'll explore why. Verses 25 through 28 open up with a discussion of sale of fields. Verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells some of his possessions, then his kinsman who is next to him shall come and redeem that which his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and he becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Then let him reckon the years since its sale, and restore the surplus to the man who whom he sold it, and he shall return to his property. But if he isn't able to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hand of whom who has bought it until the Jubilee year. 
and in the Jubilee it shall be it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. These verses teach that if someone was forced to sell a field, but he or a close relative then had the means to buy it back, they may do so. Chazal, however, learned that he may not do so until after two years have passed from the sale. They learned this from verse 27, which when discussing the amount that the original owner must pay when redeeming the land, states, let him reckon the years since the sale. Since the Torah uses the word years in plural, Chazal learned that the buyer must get at least two years worth out of his purchase. The verses teach that when the original owner buys his land back, the price is set based on how many years of sowing the buyer had benefited from and how many years left until Yovel that he had not yet gotten to benefit from. So for example, let's say someone had bought a field from Uvein in the 43rd year of the Yovel cycle. When he bought it, he assumed that he would have six years worth of use of the land and paid accordingly. If three years later, the original owner redeems the land, instead of getting six years of use, the buyer only got three. And so the original owner pays him back for the three years he did not yet get to benefit from. The section concludes by teaching that if the original owner cannot redeem the land, it will nonetheless, it will nonetheless return to him in Yovel. When selling a house in a walled city, the law is very different. Verse 29. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it has been sold. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it isn't redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be made sure in perpetuity to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released to him in the Jubilee. These verses teach that an individual who sells not a field, but rather a home in a walled city, is only allowed to redeem it within one year of the sale. Afterwards, it goes to the buyer forever, not even to be returned in the Jubilee year. As such, there are three differences between redemption of land and redemption of homes. Land can only be redeemed after two years, while homes might be redeemed immediately. Land, however, can thereafter be redeemed forever, while homes can only be redeemed for one year. And finally, the land will automatically be returned during the Jubilee year, while homes will not. What accounts for the difference in the law? Rav Yosef Prochoshor answers, According to Rav Yosef Prochoshor, the laws of redemption are meant to aid the person to subsist. As such, land which can be used for sowing can always be redeemed. But a house which is in a walled city and whose land will never be used for planting need not be redeemed. Why nonetheless can the house be bought back in the first year after the sale? Ramban answers, since the sale of one's house is very difficult for him and one is very upset upon selling it, the Torah wanted him to be able to redeem it within a year. However, after a year of living elsewhere, he's already despaired of returning to his own home and is no longer as bothered by it. In addition, not buying it back brings him no harm since his livelihood is not affected by the change. Rav Meir Simcha HaKohen of Dvinsk, the Meshachachma, gives a very different explanation for the difference in the two sets of laws. He suggests 
that these have nothing to do with economics, but rather with security. He tells us, walled cities were the fortified cities of the land, which served to protect from enemies and which were the ones strengthened during times of war. If all homes went back to their original owners during the Jubilee year, this would cause a security risk, because these people had not been living in the city for a long time, and as such, would not be familiar with the city's entrances and exits, its security holes and its strong points. Moreover, the people would not know each other, since for the last 50 years, everyone had been living elsewhere. This too would be bad for security, as it would be difficult for them to band together and fight as a unit. So according to the Meshachachma, the reason that homes in a walled city do not, to, do not revert to their original owners is because this presents a security risk. Interestingly, Chazal defined a wall city not based on the present reality, but rather on the situation during the time of Yehoshua and the conquest of the land. They tell us that any city which had a wall in the time of Yehoshua, that type of a city has the status of an ir choma with all its applicable laws, even if in the present day it is no longer walled. And conversely, if a city has a wall in the present, but did not have one in the time of Yehoshua, it is not considered an ir choma. It is not considered a walled city for the purposes of these laws. Mabim suggests that this is learned from the unique language of Ir Choma. Our verses Ir Choma rather than Ir Mukaf Choma, a city surrounded by a wall, or some similar formulation. He says that since this phrase Ir Choma is unique to our story and appears nowhere else in Torah, perhaps Chazal understood it to mean wall with a capital W, not any walled city, but only special ones, those which had a wall during the period of the conquest. According to this halachado, neither of the reasons that we gave for the distinct laws of houses in an ir choma, houses in a walled city, really work, since both reasons we presented are based on the idea that the individual is living in a city which has a wall in the time of the sale itself, not just in the time of the conquest. This leads Rav Chaim Tavsky to suggest that the uniqueness of an ir choma lies in the extra sanctity that such cities have. The Mishnah in Masachat Kilim, which enumerates the various levels of Kiddushah within Eretz Yisrael, suggests that walled cities have a special sanctity, above and beyond the regular sanctity of Eretz Yisrael. If so, suggests Rav Chaim Stavsky, perhaps it is this sanctity, and not the security or economic reasons, that account for the law. Rav Tavsky suggests that perhaps the secret character of such sites stems from the special unity that existed among the people during the period of conquest. If so, he says, perhaps all property within such a walled city is not really ever private. The city was conquered together by all, and so all in it, to some extent, belongs to everyone in the nation. As such, if you sell a home there, though you have a small chance to redeem it since it might be meaningful to you, afterwards you lose out on any further opportunities, because to begin with, it was always somewhat shared property. One may question several aspects of this theory, as for example, there's no evidence that the walled city's sanctity has anything to do with the unified conquest. But I do think it's interesting to think about why such cities are considered sacred and how this might play into Chazal's understandings of our law. The verses continue with two more scenarios. Verse 31. But the houses of the villages which have no wall around them shall be reckoned with the fields of the country, 
they may be, be they may be redeemed and they shall be released in the jubilee this verse teaches that houses in unwalled cities have the same status as a field and as such can similarly be redeemed at any point and automatically go back to the original owners in the jubilee year rav yosef bochorsho explains that such houses being unenclosed not being found in a walled city can easily be transformed into an agricultural plot and planted just like any field. And so they share the laws of open fields. Verses 32 through 34 move to the homes and fields of the Levites. Verse 32. The cities of the Levites, the houses in the cities of their possessions, the Levites may redeem at any time. The Levites may redeem the house that was sold and the city of his possession, and it shall be released in the Jubilee, for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possessions among the children of Israel. But the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. The laws of land redemptions as related to the Levites are unique. If a Levite sells a home in a walled city, the Levite may redeem it not just during the first year, but whenever he wants. And in Yovel, it automatically returns to him, even though this is a home in a Yerchomah, in a walled city. Moreover, his fields may not be sold at all. The reason given in the verses for all three laws? Because it is their possession. As the Levites were not given an inheritance with the rest of the nation, their homes and the small fields in the immediate suburbs surrounding them was all they owned. As such, we ensure that they have every possibility available to redeem them, and their only actual land, the surrounding fields, may not even be sold to begin with. I want to end this discussion on land redemption by quickly glancing at two stories in Tanakh where we see these laws being observed in action. The first is well known, the story of Ruth and Boaz that we read on Shavuot. The Megillah tells us of the widowed Naomi and Ruth, who return from Moab to Israel, destitute. To support themselves, Ruth goes gleaning in the fields, happening on the field of a relative of Naomi, Boaz. Naomi realizes that he has the potential to redeem their land, and the story tells how she has Ruth encouraged him to do so. Boaz first approaches a closer relative who has first dibs on redemption, but makes the redemption contingent on marrying Ruth, leading the relative to forgo the redemption and Boaz to take his place. The second story is from Yirmiyahu, and is a little bit less well-known. The story takes place when Jerusalem is under siege from the Babylonians, and the destruction is imminent. Yirmiyahu has already prophesied numerous times about the upcoming destruction and exile. As his political views are not to the liking of the establishment, he finds himself in prison. While there, his uncle visits and asks him to redeem his field. Ki for the right of inheritance and redemption is yours. At the command of Hashem, Yirmiyahu does so, but is perplexed. With the country under siege and the land about to be ravaged and burned, its people exiled, what is the point, he thinks? Hashem tells him that he should view the sale as a sign that after the exile, Hashem is to bring the people back, and once again, fields will be planted and sold from hand to hand. The two stories emphasize how land sale and redemption were a real part of Israelite society and how much it meant to the poor who had been forced to sell their inheritance. 
With this, we'll move to the next unit in the chapter, which we'll discuss only briefly, a discussion of loans and interest. Verse 35. If your brother has become poor and his hand can't support him among you, then you shall uphold him. He shall live with you like an alien and a temporary resident. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live among you. The next verse repeats, You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am Hashem your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Our verses teach that if we see another become poor, we should try to help him and loan him money to get back on his feet. Chazal pick up on the words and you should strengthen him and they give an analogy to highlight the importance of this deed. To what is this similar? To a load on top of a donkey's back. back. If it begins to fall, you can easily grab hold of it and keep the donkey and his load on his feet. However, once it and the donkey have fallen, it's no longer so easy to lift the donkey and its load, and likely you'll need a handful of people to help out. So too the, the Torah warns us, if you see a neighbor enter into financial difficulties, help him get back on his feet when he begins to fall. If you wait until he actually has already fallen, it will be much harder to pick him back up. Our verses don't just recommend loaning to the poor, though. They also add a prohibition. When you loan a fellow Jew money, you may not take interest. They are not to lose money on the deal, nor are you to make money on it. Having to pay back interest can often put a person more and more in debt. We are commanded to loan without interest, so the unfortunate individual can really try to put his life back together without the threat of increasing interest looming in the background. The mitzvot which surround this one in our chapter, Redemption of Lands and Slaves, highlight how our land and bodies belong to Hashem. This mitzvah might highlight how our movable property and finances also belongs to Hashem. And as all belongs to Hashem, it is His decision how we are obligated to use our money. And as we saw above, Hashem does not take it for Himself, but asks us to use it for the other. He teaches that if you have extra to spare, Try and loan some of it to someone who is wanting. Forgo the interest in making a good deal. Loan the money simply so that imach, so that your brother may live among you. Emir Hashem, next class, will finish the parasha as we discuss the laws of slavery, questioning why the Torah permits slavery at all.